So today I, I decided to split this into two because it, it, it is, it's an important uh, subject. We're going to get very, very practical here at the end, but it's basically how doubt can ferment in someone's mind and heart based on someone letting them down. Uh, you know, this can be as close as a spouse that claims to honor God and love Jesus that doesn't act in a way that's honoring to, a, to, a, uh, to the other spouse. This can be all the way up to groups of Christians, right, inquisitors, embarrassing Christianity and causing a black eye on Christendom. I wanted to be really clear, too, because this is such a common thing that if you, I don't know how you would work this sort of thing out. Um, I've told you the second most common prayer I've prayed with uh, congregants here is about wayward grandkids and kids that have left the reservation, as it were, in Christianity, or at least aren't living like they honor Jesus and think about God in their everyday life. Uh, so how would you handle this if one of your family members came to you and said, well, you know, uh, even if it's in your backyard, well, I think that what happened at your church, say, in 08, is common of all Christians. Or I think uh, what happened, you know, with uh, if it, what, what Westboro Baptist did out at that military funeral where they yelled at people and said that your, your child's in hell, I think that's constituent of every Christian. Um, some of the answers given last week were really, really good. Uh, they were, okay, well, Christianity, you know, we're, we're about forgiveness. We don't think anybody's immediately perfected. Uh, we talked a little bit about holiness. We also talked about two ditches we don't want to fall in. The first ditch is there's nothing to see here. You don't want to act like nothing to see here. And I said we have to um, uh, qualify this because our enemies tend to exaggerate these things. Not tend to, they do. Uh, both in print and, uh, and in interactions. But the other ditch is this one, that uh, church is always bad. Christians are always bad no matter what, where you globalize the negativity. So we want to, we're going to, today we're going to try to find a middle place between this. Um, but this is something I, even I've had to respond to over the years, uh, that, uh, that Christianity is somehow really, really, really bad for cultures. It's bad for individuals and groups. Uh, it's bad for cities. It's bad for people in the country. It's, it's generally bad. Now, again, this is perpetuated university. Um, it's changing, which is really, really interesting. It's, it's being forced to change in some of the psychological uh, sciences. Some of, in psychology and sociology, it's having to change. For years and years and years, Christianity bad was the follow-up for the Freudian approach to assessing religion in general, but Christianity in particular. Um, uh, in history classes, you got a lot of time spent on talking about the the uh, the negatives that come with the, the black eyes on Christianity, uh, the, the the wars over theology, uh, um, uh, peasants' war, the revolt uh, that went on uh, amongst the uh, provinces after Martin Luther's uh, Reformation attempt, his 95 theses being being uh, nailed on the door in the Wittenberg Church. Um, you know, crusades, witch hunts, inquisitions, you can almost say it like a mantra. So one of the things I used to do was try to, uh, like I mentioned to you guys last time, is I try to at least add some information to that to say, okay, it's, it's a black eye on Christianity for sure, but this is what was going on as well. Um, because every single time it's brought up and, and, and exaggerated so that Christians are either embarrassed to say they're Christians, keep it private, or it's brought up just to say that to, to try to indicate the idea that this is what happens when Christians get any sort of power or influence. Um, and it's just not the case. So uh, you know this has happened in our culture. You, it ends up canceling. You end up canceling people um, based on uh, perceived flaws uh, in the past and sins in their lives. This, this happens uh, uh, now more than ever. You saw this with the, the, the pulling down of statues and things to this, to this effect. So the other wrong response, one wrong response is nothing to see here. The other wrong response is everything in the church is bad. Probably the book that is the greatest 
uh, I hate to say greatest, probably the, the premier example of blaming Christians for everything and saying everything in religion is awful is this book, God is Not Great. I mentioned it last week, I believe, Christopher Hitchens. How religion, look at that, poisons everything. How religion poisons everything. Um, you, you see, again, the late Christopher Hitchens saying that everything that religion touches turn, makes it negative, turns things negative and bad. Um, so, uh, again, very, very interesting. One of the things when I was first analyzing this book when it came out in the early 2000s uh, was that he says at the beginning of the book that you shouldn't believe anything without evidence. But then he doesn't provide a lot of evidence that Christianity makes everything bad or any religion always makes things negative all the time. He uses a couple of examples, but he's not very evidential <laughs> in his book. And this book, again, got just lamb-blasted by, uh, by his contemporaries, even non-believers. We're like, this is, I, I can't believe this got published. Are you kidding me? Just to bypass all the goods Christianity's done across history, all the good religion has done for human, human societies is really, really short-sighted. In other words, most even non-believers saw this for what it was. And uh, If you stack up negative examples of anything in a row, and that's all you look at, you can make anything look bad. You understand what I'm saying? We generally think fatherhood's a good thing. If I stacked up 17 examples of bad fathering, you'd, oh man, this whole fatherhood thing, right? Uh, same thing with marriage, right? Same thing with, so, so again, uh, we tend to think that, you know, material resource is good. Having good material resource is good. So being wealthy is something we all, we tend to shoot for. Uh, again, <laughs> under the Lord and, and in his name, not, you know, not keeping greed and materialism in check. But if you stacked up 17 wealthy people or 20 or 40 wealthy people that were really misbehaving and it looked like it was connected to their pursuit of wealth, you'd think that, Attempting to be wealthy or having resources would automatically make you a bad, evil, terrible person. So again, um, this is uh, this is really, really. It's important to understand this is not a response we want to we want to have as uh, either. So look, uh, we still think the church is the bride of Christ, right? Not perfect, flaws and all. Um, it's really, really important to see that Christ has promised to build and purify His church. So can I have somebody look up Matthew sixteen eighteen? Would somebody mind doing that? If you can get your phone out or your Bible, if you brought your Bible, and then Ephesians five twenty seven. And when you get there, raise your hand, and I'll, I'll have you read it out loud. Um, uh, and I'll just say this. I, I laid my cards on the table last week. There is far, far more good in the world that Christianity's done than negativity. In fact, yes. All right, one second, Matt. Um, you, you have the first one, the Matthew passage. Okay, that makes sense, right? Uh, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, his name's Matthew. So, uh, so yeah, I, I would just say this. Um, it's like when somebody says, look at all the differences in the Gospels. And they bypass all the similarities in the biographies, right? They just bypass how tightly connected these, uh, these events, the, the description of these events are, and look at the, well, what's this difference here? So, in, in other words, these are anomalies, right, that, uh, that, that bad behavior in Christians are, the, are not the norm, but the departure from the norm. Um, I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, one of the best critiques of Christianity by Muslims, of Islam, is this one. Well, I don't want your freedom, because look what your freedom gets you. And they list all the worst toxic parts of our culture. It looks like an increase in pornography, uh, dissipation, families are falling apart. So they blame the Christian emphasis on freedom for all the negative events in our culture, right? So one of the things I tell them is this is a these events are a departure from utilizing Christian freedom properly. Freedom isn't just freedom from constraint. It's freedom to be what you're supposed to be, amen? There's a, that's a big thing to add with Christianity. So again, um, it, people ad attempt to smear Christianity this way all the time. Matt, 
Go ahead and read uh, Matthew 16, 18. Listen. So we hear Jesus saying here the gates of hell. He was likely near a temple near a cave mouth. If you've been to the Holy Land where he was saying the gates of hell is what they called this, the, the, this cave that led to or this big hole in the side of a rock in Israel that led to uh, uh, a, an underground stream that was like there was a place where they built the Romans built a temple worship. But most people take this to mean that the gates of hell, the pagan, idolatrous, God-hating world will not actually overcome the church. And that Jesus says, my spirit, I will build this church, right, in this way. So, again, if the church is all bad all the time, then Jesus was wrong here. How about Ephesians 5.27? Anybody got that? Kelly, go ahead. We're working towards us all because we're the body of Christ, being holy and blameless, getting there, right? So, uh, again, Paul's really, really clear that leaders and Christians are not perfected, but we're heading that way. Uh, by the, by the uh, Spirit of Jesus. Um, I was going to ask you if you had any examples that you could think of of the church going right, where the church has exemplified being the body of Christ in a positive way. Does anybody, can you think of any examples where the, go ahead, yes. Very, very true, yes. Uh, hospitals were a Christian idea and a Christian invention uh, by people following Jesus' lead. About half of Jesus' recorded miracles were healing miracles. So hospitals followed that and were really, believe it or not, uh, were, were expanded through the Roman Empire during the the, the, uh, the Crusade era uh, by, by a, a, a certain type of knight, uh, uh, Templar knight. Yes. Yes. There were, there were about a half dozen agnostic and atheist commentators that were commenting on Hitchens' book for this very thing. You're going to bypass... The only force that abolished modern antebellum pre-war type, you know, uh, European and, and, and worldwide slavery, I mean, it still goes on, but struck the biggest blow against it. You're going you're gonna, you're gonna to pass that up and say, well, uh, you know, look what they did during the Crusades. Very, very good. Anybody else? Any idea where the church has been? Yeah. Yeah, yes. Even today, if you believe it's, if, if you interpret the abortion effort, which I do, as a life-saving effort, uh, the church is the forefront of that sort of thing. I don't know if you know this. We're, uh, we're One second, Larry, I'm going to get you. Um, no one does more for the poor than Christians. There's no three organizations that do more for the poor. Uh, we're the second most effective disaster relief organization. At, worldwide, we're the number one. Second, we're the second most uh, only here because of FEMA. So government dollars go, billions of dollars go toward uh, emergencies here domestically. But worldwide, no one. And by the way, if you minus FEMA, people getting paid to be, you know, to, to go help people in disaster, we're the, we're the number one. Uh, Larry, go ahead. Uh, colleges, universities, yep. It's so bittersweet because they've all turned on us. But that's, yeah, uh, I don't know if you know this. Of uh, All the Ivy Leagues were started to train believers treated the Bible with respect, um, very, very few. There's very few that were founded just in opposition. Um, uh, you know, there was a different uh, approach that um, that the flakiest, b biblically and spiritually, the founding fathers were brilliant. Thomas Jefferson did when he did UVA. Um, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt wanted to found Vanderbilt in opposition to how many schools were so Christ-oriented, biblically faithful. Um, those days are long gone, but yeah. Yeah, Brian, go ahead. That's right. I mean, it, it's... You, it, Again, a, a legitimate discussion is going to have to include these sort of things, right? Um, even And I noticed what I did last week, too. I stacked up even stuff locally that could make you go, man, 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 when you just put the misses, right? 
in a row. Um, all the misses in the church, even our local church, it could, you could get the conclusion if you stack enough of those in a row and don't qualify with any of the good to say, oh, this, why do we even come to church on Sunday, right? So we want to avoid that sort of thing. Yes, 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 incredible. Uh, orphanages and hospitals are a Christian, are an inheritance of a Christian tradition. Even, I don't know if you ever thought about it, this is getting a little too, it's in the weeds a bit, but it's, it's, it can be part of high-level discussions. Um, the whole idea of rights, if they don't come from a supremely valuable being, right, they don't come from anywhere. Um, again, you can see this. Uh, I can remember reading uh, Dershowitz's book, Shouting Fire, the, the most pr uh, prestigious and most known lawyer, <laughs> Harvard lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. Remember, defended OJ. Ooh. Uh, but Dershowitz's last book was called Shouting Fire, where he is struggling in two chapters with this idea. He's like, look, rights can't come from another human being because then that other human being can either say you don't have them like that. It can't come from the culture. Why? Because you're to assert them against the cultural, Right? What does that mean? That means when the culture, the group of people over you says you don't have rights anymore, the whole idea of a right is you can assert them against, against if they're legitimate. And he goes, last, so they have to be something more than just something conferred by culture or by your individual imagination. But I don't want to believe in an, in an immaterial, supernatural realm with a supernatural being. So maybe they're just somewhere in the air. Or, like he literally struggles with this. They need to be more weighty than just a statement or a thought or an opinion of a group of people or an individual person. Um, well, that's where we got the idea of rights was from a rights giver, right? A rights giver. So again, you see that kind of, you can see how it's odd to say you've got an abortion right. It's not codified in the Constitution, right? And it's, how are you calling this a, a right, right? I mean, uh, where do rights come from? What do you, I mean, if you just if 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 you're a secularist, rights come from a group of people deciding. So come what may, if that group says one thing tomorrow and another thing the next day, you're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. That's right. That's right. That that yes, I've got atheists that say begrudgingly that the greatest religion for the elevation of women <laughs> in the history of religions across all religious traditions, Christianity. And you're like, wait a second, what about Eve? Isn't she? No, um, keep reading, right? The, it, it's, it's astounding what Jesus did, even in his, in his life. To have uh, uh, female followers and supporters of the ministry um, was radical, radical, especially in a Jewish, in a Jewish cultural context and in a Roman wider context. So, yes, elevation of women is uh, um, absolutely part of this, uh, this as well. Um, uh, and especially important on Mother's Day, right? Uh, you think about the culture and how they're warring on the idea of motherhood. I mean, I like trying to simplify things down. Sometimes you don't, you don't want to make something so simple it's insulting to someone. But if you think about it, the culture war, you can almost put everything into categories if you think of it this way. The, the, the rage between assuming you're a creator or a creature. If you create everything yourself, your happiness, your identity, your future, that sort of thing, then you're going to get angry if anyone impinges upon that, right? Any authority. So this, you know, this is the expressive individualism idea that I'll be, I'll be a god unto myself versus you being a creature with divinely imposed limitations and a, divine, a divinely given purpose and plan, generally and specifically. That's the big rage right now. It's the, the rage between I create these things based on my own whims and desires per day versus, you know, you've been created, um, so, key points to remember here, um, Christianity anticipates a negative problem like this, just so you know. Remember, we have a, the uh, we have a, uh, a theology that includes fallenness. 
the power of sin. Um, there's a theologian and teacher named Peter Mead that calls it fallen world gravity. The gravity of a fallen world to pull you down from your attempt to try to, 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 try to keep your eyes on God. Fallen world gravity. Um, so, yeah, oh, I think I put it, yeah, put it here. So, yes, because of indwelling sin and the power of it, Christians can do sometimes shockingly immoral things. Uh, so, again, this could be part of the, the conversation with someone. And look, look what Paul says here in Romans seven fifteen through 17. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do, but it's the sin that dwells within me. So, again, um, really, really important uh, to remember that uh, even Paul, when he was, uh, this has been so unsettling. There are people that want to believe that Paul was perfect. So there are, there are some theologians that try to say, well, Paul's talking about a, a third imaginary person, not himself here. The natural reading of Romans 7 is, I still struggle with sin, signed Paul. Um, but people don't want that. They, they, they don't want that. Um, but notice what we're trying to do right here is balance between hagiography, right, airbrushing out everybody's problems and just putting the, the, the positive up, nothing to see here, and then anti-hagiography, anti-holy story, which is any holy story is a bad story uh, that our culture kind of tries to, tries to proffer. Um, remember that character development, that sanctification or holiness is progressive. It's not all at once. Um, it's actually good to leave room. You can't grow unless there's success and failure, the possibility of failure. And then, um, you know, when you encounter somebody, they might be uh, incomplete. They might be changed, but incomplete. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between just being imperfect and being hypocritical. We'll talk about that. There's a difference between those two. Um, but let me just put it this way. I, I can remember years ago reading C.S. Lewis on this, and he encountered a woman at his, uh, at his church, his Anglican church, um, in, I think it was when he was in England. Um, but he was, he was either in the middle of travel, and he wrote about her later, and he goes, I'll call this woman Miss Grundy. Miss Grundy. He goes, it's just, he goes, I don't know if I've ever met somebody named Grundy that didn't have a bad attitude. Uh, but he called her Miss Grundy. It wasn't a real name. And she, he said she was, how do you put it, particularly unpleasant. And it was at church and, uh, you know, barely, barely got the words out of the hymn, looked anxious and, and anxiety ridden. And he said, and later I overheard someone discussing her and talking about how much she had changed. Now, I was just visiting the church. She was particularly unpleasant. And they said, boy, you should have seen Grundy before. I mean, she was in process. In other words, she was still, according to Lewis, like, is this woman even a Christian? But she had been so much worse before. Everybody that knew her for years said, man, she is so much better than she used to be. Um, she's a fire now. She was hell on earth uh, before. So remember Miss Grundy, right? People are in process. They're in process. Um, we also need to understand that sin is deeper, darker, and more pernicious than you think. Um, the reformers put it this way. They used a Latin, a Latin phrase, incurvatio se, the turning of itself in on itself, the, the, the pathological self-centeredness of sin, um, the glorification of self. Um, some people that aren't Christians see this about humanity. They use different terms. Like they wouldn't call it fallenness. They'd say it's the crooked timber of humanity, um, uh, pathologically self-centered. Um, again, if you wanted to put two basic categories on all the issues you're going to find between people that disagree on major things and get angry very quickly. You could say this as well, not just creator, creature, but you could also say this difference in distinction. The difference between someone who has a tragic vision of reality and someone who has a utopian vision of reality. If you believe in, in a human perfectibility, that's not a biblical idea, then you will constantly 
constantly be upset by the imperfection of the world. Now, we want to be upset by the imperfection of the world, and Christians do things about it. But the other is what's called a tragic vision. Again, these aren't biblical terms, but that matches the Bible. A tragic vision of reality says, all right, in a fallen world that's compromised, there's always going to be trade-offs until heaven. Always. And we've talked about that a little bit, that in the greatest success, there'll be seeds of some failures. <laughs> and in the greatest failure, there's seeds of success. So, um, so again, it's, that's, a, that's a difference as well. If you're a person that, that, that accounts for a lot of the political divide, a lot of the spiritual and religious divide, is this vision of what humans can do individually and collectively together. Um, remember King David, right? You got the mix right there. Uh, what, one of the ways we put it in the Bible is the difference between prescriptive and descriptive issues in the Bible. There are prescription, do this, do this. And there's description, right? This is what happened, which could include what not to do as well. So King David, man after God's own heart, trusted the Lord, had miracles happen in his life, was the chosen amongst, uh, amongst others as, a, as better than an equal. Um, but even he had an ark, right? Saul had an ark and then fell David had an ark, then fell. Solomon had an ark, then fell. So we, we remember this. The Bible's realistic. It has complex characters in it. Um, and, and last thing as well to remember is that because of common grace and general revelation, there are times where Christians in particular instances can look like they're doing better than, than uh, non-Christians can look like they're doing better than Christians. And they might be. God has spread his common grace out and given blessings, wisdom, he has given uh, certain, certain degrees of patience to people. One of the ways God still has an indirect control in this world is, is preventing people from being as bad as they could be. Uh, general revelation, you look at Romans 2, does at least give us a general heartfelt empathy. What does that mean? That even if you never knew the details of God's law, moral law, you'd know this. I know how I'd like to be treated, and I have this weird impulse to do that to others but I know I don't want to do it. I don't actually implement doing it to others, but I know how I'd want to be treated, and I should probably do that to others. Where does that come from? The Bible would call that common grace or general revelation, um, but then we don't follow through and act on it. So again, remember that in individual instances, I don't, think it can, I don't think it's across the board, and I don't think it's all the time, but in individual instances, sometimes non-Christians can get, have more common grace and act in ways better than regular Christians. Um, so... Yeah, God restrains the sin of the non-Christians so they're not as bad as they otherwise would be. Um, can somebody read Thessalonians, uh, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 2.5, but if you see it's not related to the passage, then just don't worry about it. So anybody uh, mind grabbing that one for me? I, I'm going to move on, but I just want to make sure we could, we could read it out loud. Um, but yeah, so common grace or general revelation is God's extravagant blessing even out to people that reject him, ignore him, or don't think about him. Um, and that's why sometimes it looks like some non-believers, even the psalmist complain about this. Why is it that people ignore you, look like they're doing better than me with regard to finances? They're not being attacked as much. Why, why, is this, why, is, why are these sort of things happening? I think it's First Thessalonians. No, well, yeah, it might be First Thessalonians, but if it's not related to general revelation, then move over to Second Thessalonians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, question or comment? I'm going to stop right here before we get to the practicals here in a second. So any, any question or comment at all? Yeah, Tony, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, yeah. End times, it says, yeah, that God's restraining hand is pulled back. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, because right now, it's a little easier to imagine these things, but I can imagine maybe 100 years ago reading a passage where kids rise up and kill their parents, like, what, what kind of world is this? Um, it's a little easier to think about now, unfortunately, but... Uh, but yeah, uh, anybody else, uh, c question or comment about these qualifiers? Again, we're gonna, I'm going to put this into a, a format where you can talk about it here in a moment. But given how pervasive the Christianity disappointed me or Christianity turns you into a really bad person, but it's a, it's a setup job to make you feel like you're a good person. Um, 
the, the fact that you'll run into this is going to be is, is almost guaranteed if you do any sharing with anybody. Um, any other comment or question about what, what we've gone over here? Anything? Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we got that. So, yeah, the fa these factors, common grace, general revelation, mean that sometimes the behavior of Christians and non-Christians is sometimes not all that different. So, again, um, we want to be really, really clear on this, that, uh, that these sort of things uh, can happen, and that's why sometimes it looks like, you know, this, this person's doing better than this, this, uh, this non-believer. It looks like they're doing better than the believer. Again, I think that happens more localized. I don't think that happens across the board, at least the, even the psychological data that's, that's rigged against thinking positively about Christianity or, or assessing it positively would uh, go against the idea that non-Christians generally, in a general sense, happen to have uh, better life milestones and better outcomes than, than Christians. But on an individual level, this seems to happen. Anybody have that passage? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, bud. Out loud. Now, just so you know, if you're worried about the God send them a delusion, um, in every instance where this happens, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Old Testament, there is a previous unbelief that is continuously in a lack of repentance happening where God just finally says, like it, one of the scariest passages in the Bible in Romans 1, it says he hands them over or could hand us over. Um, if you continue to violate conscience and continue to violate God in repentance and violate his other image bearers, he'll eventually double and triple down what you're doing and add to what you're doing in an effort to you know, have the result bring you back. So, uh, so that's, I forgot, that's the one, one I didn't look up that was from the PowerPoint from two weeks ago. Uh, the man of lawlessness. There's a lot, of, a lot of people that have spilled ink on this man of lawlessness. And Paul's talking about in the future, Satan's compromised control over this reality and this, this lawless spirit and then this personification of lawlessness that some people think might be antichrist. Um, but the idea there is that this lawlessness, this anti-law, anti-God, anti-authority, no one's going to tell me what to do. I am the creator, not the creature, is common in the world. Paul says this, and it was common in the world even back then. So it's something that will be dealt with by Jesus definitively when he returns, but it's something that we, we Christians have to deal with. In other words, we have biblical data that helps us understand when, when, uh, when Christians misbehave and act negatively and act uh, even hypocritically. Um, so I want you to know, too, that we don't have another religious leader that's more against hypocrisy than Jesus. We don't have another religious leader to take uh, again, uh, Muhammad didn't like it. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, didn't like it. But there's nobody that, uh, in fact, I want to give you this book. It was a great book I read a couple of years ago. Um, there's a theologian uh, out in Moscow, Idaho, named Doug Wilson. Um, he's a reform guy. Um, but he wrote a book, a little book called The Serrated Edge, where all he did is this. This is the question he wanted to answer. What got Jesus the most angry in the Gospels? What annoyed him the worst? What did, how did Jesus pick a fight, <laughs> Right? All the way from the tables turning to outright major insult to the religious leaders was, were two things, right? Two things. One was this. Hypocrisy. Saying one thing, doing another. In the sense of continuously putting a false front up. And religious arrogance. Arrogance and hypocrisy were the two things that got Jesus' ire the highest. Where God's ignored and you're trying to posture in front of other people. And you're keeping people out of the kingdom by making them do things that you yourself don't do. This drove Jesus crazy, okay? So again, uh, I don't think hypocrisy is the worst sin, but it is interesting that Jesus reserved his strongest flaming words for hypocrites and religious, uh, false religious teachers that were professing things that were inaccurate 
and leading people down the wrong path and all the while acting like they were doing things they weren't doing. Very, very interesting. He reserved his strongest words for them. Um, he doesn't even have those kind of strong words for people that are, that are repentant and have done much, much worse consequential sins. Um, so, um, so just so you know, another item to put in here is Jesus himself reacted negatively to hypocrisy. In fact, it was the thing that got him the most angry in this, in this, uh, when he was in, during his time in this, in this world based on the, uh, the, the biographies we have of him. Any question or comment about Jesus' anger? <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Yes. Or, or, yeah, or, 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 yeah, or pedophilia, or, yes, or bestiality, or porn. No, I know, or sex trafficking. I know, it's interesting. So what Alex's point was this, that the Muslim points to the Christian and said, look what your Christian culture has gotten you, right? You lead in this, you lead in that, you lead in this, you lead in that. He goes, but if you, if you put the mirror up and you look at who's leading the world in those things, maybe not production, but engagement with it, uh, the, the uh, addiction to it, uh, implementation of some of the worst, some of the worst uh, sexual violations and, and, and human rights violations, many of them are Sharia countries. So I, that's right, that's right, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, some, yeah, again, so uh, before we throw the rock, <laughs> make sure, you know, don't throw a rock from a glass house, right? So um, now look, hey, is this on the table? Sometimes this might mean they're not Christian. Is that fair? Now, this is tricky, right? But it could be that continuous bad Christian, non, non-Christian behavior might indicate they didn't really, they don't really believe. Now, again, that's, a, that's not our call, right? Um, but Jesus talked about this all the time, right? It's not easy to tell, but he said, what do you know him by what? Fruit. Probably one of the most unsettling things I ever said to students when I used to teach was I'd do this thing on the board where I'd make a mark X, and I put a circle around it and say, point of conversion. Let's say you go down to the altar, you have a tearful, on-your-knees experience where the Holy Spirit convicts you. You repent, you say the sinner's prayer. And then I, I drew a, a, a broken, cracked line going up. I said, what your life should look like is improvement with failures. In other words, valleys, but improvement. If it looks more like this... Where you started as a bad gossip, now you're a crack dealer, then you may want to consider what what Paul says in 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 uh, I, I, oh shoot first or second Corinthians thirteen five he says examine yourself daily examine yourself daily that's not to be neurotic but that's to mean like if you are struggling with worse habitual sins in your life than you did the moment that you accepted Jesus the you can't get away from fruit. The Bible talks about you being empowered by the Spirit to obedience. That doesn't mean perfection. So the idea is that your your life should look like a cracked, imperfect improvement rather than a devolution. Um, or perhaps you don't have the, uh, the Spirit in your life at all. So again, sometimes evil acts are evidence a person's not really saved. So let's say you have a situation where um, somebody who is a trusted Christian leader does something really, really despicable. And you believe they're still a believer, right? So now you don't prosecute. Why? Because the Bible says don't take a brother, a brother or sister to court. You handle things what? what? In this sort of way, right? But could it be that if you've caught them with this kind of habitual sin, with these kind of consequences for this many years, they may not be a believer at all? In which case, you should prosecute. And shouldn't a Christian go, 
I'm going to go do something common to the punishment anyway because I'm so repentant about it. Now, that could be something here or something. You, that r- reasoning was absent in the Roman Catholic Church scandals. What did they say? You can't take another believer to court, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? So we'll just move this pedophilic priest to another diocese. You see? So the idea is we need strong accountability, and you have to at least put on the table, well, because of this activity, it's not just imperfection. It's this indicates that you may not have a regenerated heart. So uh, especially when you look at consequence and habits. So we'll talk about that here in a second. So Again, some evil acts done by Christians may not have really been, do- been done by Christians, even with the idea that we're imperfect. Okay, um, last uh, thing before we get to the questions. Go ahead, yeah. Yes, not even sit down at a meal, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, <laughs> um, and then Paul goes on to say, I'm not talking about non-believers. Then you have to leave the world, right? But if someone claims to be a believer and you have inside knowledge that they have habits of the heart, with these kind of consequences that indicate they never give God a second thought, they don't live a life filled with repentance, they're not even concerned about disobedience, much less obeying, you're not even to sit at a meal with them. These are the new, the new, uh, the new believers in Corinth that were having trouble. Remember, 1 Corinthians' whole context is a scold how bad things were going at that church Paul had planted. You're not doing this right. You're not doing this right. You're not doing this right. Bless God, you're not doing this right. Um, so, again, uh, if we take those scriptures seriously, there has to be, uh, if you go further, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you, know, uh, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. Remove the immoral person from among you. Um, in other words, it's a tricky thing, but what we have to be is, if we're confessing, we can be fruit inspectors. But if we're afraid of confession and therefore owning it because we're afraid it'll turn into a Roman Catholic expression, then we won't do it and nobody can expect anything. And everybody's doing their own thing, right? So, again, I think, again, it, it minimally it means if you're going to, you've got to take James seriously. If you expect to be a teacher slash leader, you'll be judged more harshly. So just don't take that lightly, right? Uh, or as Paul says in 1 Timothy, keep your life and doctrine straight. For by, many, but, but by it many you get saved. It's not saying my life and doctrine save you. I'm not transmitting grace. But by that example, you can cause people to either be influenced by Christianity or be turned away from it. So Christianity can be, still be true even if people following it make a mess of it. The great thing to look at is Jesus. <laughs> you could all, he is perfect. So you're safe to look at him. Every other leader that's ever lived was morally compromised in some way. Jesus wasn't. Um, so it, it's great to put your eyes on Jesus because that's what we have to do who covers our foibles, imperfections, sins, and follies. So again, that's who you place your ultimate hope in is Jesus. He'll never disappoint you or let you down. Now again, you may think, well, I already said that. When my <laughs> nephew came to me and said, what about this uh, Carl Lentz in New York and all those people that got saved under him? What does that even mean when he, you know, doing this sort of thing and just destroying his own family and destroying his congregation? He's like, well, I keep my eyes on Jesus. True, true. But I'm hoping there's more to the conversation than this is how I keep my eyes on Jesus and how I don't leave the faith over these, these uh, Christians behaving badly, really badly. Um, okay. Um, last couple of things before we get into the practicals. You need to make a determination when you talk to somebody, say, look, it's not an easy thing to talk about the difference between hypocrisy and imperfection, okay? It requires you knowing the person a little longer. What, in other words, does it mean I'm a hypocrite because uh, um, I didn't show a Christian type of patience with the checkout lady at Walmart last night? Um, that happened. So, um, and I know and I'm not trying to find the minimal one. That literally is the one most common right now. Uh, does that mean I'm a hypocrite? Well, no, unless I've shown a repeated pattern of not recognizing it, confessing it, 
asking forgiveness for it. It has to do with repetition and attitude whether something becomes just missing the mark versus hypocrisy, okay? Hypocrisy. In other words, everybody's inconsistent. Everyone's inconsistent in this side of, this side of eternity. The question is repetition and attitude. Is there any remorse with the three R's, right? Remorse, an attempt at restitution, and regret. Is there any uh, attempt to ask for power to turn up? Repentance, is, the Greek word is metanoieo, to turn and go the other way. You have to first own it in order to turn away from it. So, yeah, it's one thing to struggle occasionally, but uh, attitude, it's another thing to continue in one sinful behavior without any regret or an attempt to improve. So that's where Pharisaism comes in. But even this, you guys, we just have to be careful. Nobody would have guessed looking at Jesus' disciples that Judas would have ended up the way he ended up. And nobody would have guessed that Peter would have been the leader. Nobody along the way. So, again, we want to, again, try to give grace where we can. Um, and, and, and see that sort of thing uh, happen. Second Corinthians 13.5. I thought I, I, I couldn't remember if it was first or second, but it says, yeah, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the, in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So again, strong accountability is really, really needed. If nothing else, please get out of this. You pray for any Christian leaders that are in your life that you give time and attention to, that you, you, uh, you're looking to them to help you mine truths out of the word. Um, you know, again, uh, that they have a watchful life, First Timothy 4, uh, and that, that sort of thing. And then uh, remember, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will at least live by Psalm 146, as put not your trust in princes and leaders. So you're not to put your ultimate trust in these sort of, these sort of people at all. Okay, so let's look at questions to ask. We've talked about how um, questions are the way Jesus, the rabbi, approached interacting with people and why that's really important. He used a, uh, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't accessing in his mind Socrates, but one of the greatest teachers in human history was the Greek philosopher Socrates, who used a question and answer method. Why is that important? One is you get to decide when the conversation begins and ends. You set the table for the conversation. And next, it helps people open up within their own assumptions. People are going to be much more prone to believing something they've come to on their own rather than being told, you better believe this or else. In fact, you can't force someone to believe anything. So when you look at Jesus in the, in the Gospels, there's like 300 state or questions to every one. There's three to one to like 100 statements, just outright theological statements, where he'd use this questioning. So how do we deal with people who say, hey, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore because X did this, or this group did that, or did you know this, or this Christianity leads to this sort of behavior. Here are some questions to ask that get it kind of summarizing what we've been talking about. Does bad behavior of Christians prove God doesn't exist or Jesus is a fraud? The very first thing to realize is this. God's still God, and Jesus still who he says he is, even if the followers misbehave, okay? At best, it would, it would start an argument to say, well, maybe God's indwelling presence isn't there. Or maybe God doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, uh, do the work on the heart that most I've been led to believe he does. But it doesn't get Jesus as our Savior and God out of the mix with regard to their, their existence. Question, aren't Christians attempting or expected to live by high standards? Why is this important? Again, if you're an atheist on the sideline making fun of somebody trying to run a race over hurdles morally, um, and you, what, you make up your own moral code and don't live by it, right? If you keep, Christians have, what, a public, a publicly accessible moral code <laughs> that we're expected to live up to, starting with Jesus, right, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own effort. Uh, well, atheists have a subjective secret in their own hearts moral code, <laughs> right? I mean, they have the, the, the law written on the heart, but they deny that. So they, it's a lot easier to make up what you're going to behave like after the fact to justify yourself rather than try to live by a high moral standard and fail at doing that from time to time. So again, it's kind of an unfair thing to say, well, you Christians are hypocrites when someone doesn't have a you know, has a fluid moral code. 
three question was this action rare or singular or were they and were they remorseful remember we got to know that there's a difference between just general imperfection and hypocrisy right um, whether this is an attitude of the heart or it's an actual just a time where somebody was imperfect uh, you know let's say somebody had a real experience with the holy spirit and then because of their current friend group that wasn't exactly on fire for the Lord, they had a moral failing over the weekend. Maybe got drunk or something, and you know that, and you see them worshiping God on that next Wednesday. Is this a one-time down, or is this an indication that it was a fake, fake scenario to begin with? So, again, was this the action you're talking about, whether it's the Crusades or somebody being unpleasant to you at youth group, was it rare and singular? Do you have a relationship with them to make a compare and contrast? And were they remorseful? Was there an attitude of the heart that, that indicated to you that this isn't hypocrisy, this was just a, an imperfection? Question, do you know that humans fall in former habits, sin, and wicked perspective is described and engaged in the Bible? We have a Bible, a holy book, that, uh, that accounts for even Christians behaving badly. It doesn't mean we accept them behaving badly, but the Bible talks about how per pernicious and widespread sinful habits and perspectives are. So the, f the fallenness of human, and again, if you're not a Christian, uh, non-Christian philosophers call it the crooked timber of humanity, a tragic vision of life, this sort of thing that it seems to be woven into the fabric of our human lives, this, this imperfection. Um, can't we, frame, can't we frame any idea horribly if we just use one side? So I've used that before. Um, if somebody says, well, I just, you know, I, I think of Christianity and I just think of Roman Catholic church scandals, crusades, and uh, treating women horribly, you know, uh, cheating husbands. And I'm like, but if you're just stacking those up, <laughs> you can make anything look bad if you just stack one side, right? I mean, let's try to be fair. Let's have a conversation. Let's try to be fair here. Um, I can do that with any good thing. I can stack up all the failures of that good thing and say, see, see. And as a matter of fact, you guys know our culture does this with marriage, don't they? It's so much easier than me hold the mirror up and go, I'm really not good at marriage because I'm not, I'm not putting myself under the authority of the person that designed marriage and gender and sex. I'm not doing that. So instead, I'll what? I'll indict the institution of marriage, right? I need a piece of paper for Look at all these failed marriages, right? Failures, right? No, no. People are in marriages and people fail. So, um, and again, you could even counterbalance that good by saying, look what marriage has done for human cultures, even non-Christian human cultures. It's God's idea. So again, another question to ask is, are you aware of any counterbalancing good Christians, right? So for example, uh, this person abused the poor and took advantage of them. Um, okay, do you know anybody that didn't do that, that went out of their way right, to give philanthropy and outreach to the poor out of their own pocket, at a, at a large cost to themselves that claim that God instigated this, this move in their life. In other words, are there counterbalancing good Christians that you're using in your own mind to counterbalance this negativity? Can you think of any reasons why God might not change us immediately? This has been a good one, especially if somebody's a real reflective dis doubter, if they're a real uh, a reflective or thinker, um, is to say this, all right, if God doesn't change us in every attitude and totally reprogram us the moment we get down to the altar, can you think of any good reasons why he might refrain from doing that, right? Um, you know, it's uh, go going into, the, into like a, <laughs> a shop to have your brain reprogrammed. Um, God wants us to love him and love him freely, uh, not him just reprogram us to love him. Um, so did you know that Jesus and most of the other major figures in the Bible are adamantly opposed to hypocrisy and lying? We have a Bible that's really, really against this. So you know what? You're having a biblical reaction to this sort of thing.
But it doesn't necessarily mean God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean holiness is a fraud. It doesn't mean it means you just need to think a little bit more broadly about this sort of thing and try to understand it in in uh, in context and think deeply about it. In other words, there's no other area in your life where one or two bad examples overwhelm the good pattern. Um, I was talking to a student that came to the house two years ago from FGCU that said this very thing. Um, said, well, I just, you know, I appreciate this. These people, yeah, everybody seems pretty nice here and interactive, but, you know, I, I came to a Chi Alpha, and I just, I just tend to think Christians are just, they're all just, they're all fake, because I had a couple that were inconsistent in my dorm, and I think, uh, and I had a teacher that said something that claimed to be a, a Roman Catholic, and he gave me a bad grade when I didn't deserve it, and, um, and I said, well, let me ask you this. So what do you, he, he was a bio major. I said, do you know people have falsified documents? And they falsified research in the, in the biological sciences, yeah. Does that mean all of biology is bad? Does that mean biology is a bad thing? Um, I said, you're an, you're an atheist. I, 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 I could sit here for the next week and tell you about all the times atheists have done horrific, horrific things. Does that automatically invalidate your skepticism? He's like, well, no. I said, see, you don't even do this with other things in your life. You don't do it with biology, and you don't do it with your skepticism. So, again... Let's be fair to Christianity and not treat it unlike we treat other things in our lives that have the same sort of thing going on. Last little bit before we go. Uh, this has been a helpful one if they're willing to listen. This is troubling. You mentioned the Crusades. You mentioned uh, uh, Jerry Falwell. Uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, what we've had here go on as well. Failures of, of leadership across the border, a, a, a betrayed spouse. How do I process these issues? And this is a good little run-through, again, to remember. Uh, the good in Christianity outweighs the bad. So when, I, when somebody gives me the floor and I'll say, what you're saying is obviously troubling, but you care to know how people like me don't leave the faith over it. Here's why I haven't left the faith. You're advocating I should leave the faith. You mentioned the Crusades. You mentioned a rogue priest. You mentioned a, well, first and foremost, the counterbalancing good overwhelms these sort of things. It doesn't mean they're not real, and it doesn't mean we don't, we're not concerned about them, but there's far more counterbalancing good to Christianity than bad. Christians are broken people in the process of improving. True character change is never fast. In all my experience, as well as the experience of the ancients, true character change is a usually, largely a slow process. One piece might improve through supernatural power uh, quickly, but most of the time, God changes our character slowly. Christianity includes the idea that evil and sin are powerful and residual. Evil and sin are powerful and residual. They tend to hang on in habits and perspectives even after someone's given their heart and lives to Jesus. Um, by the way, the Bible has the most realistic depiction of its characters as flawed. Outside of Jesus, everyone's flawed and uh, has, has, is, is honest about the issues there. One of the reasons I trust the Bible over any other holy book is its embarrassing details. Um, if you talk to even Old Testament scholars, why some take the Torah seriously, look how it presents their figures. You compare it to, say, Egyptian hagiography, right? Egyptians, they would just record the wins their army would, would, would have, right? They'd only record the positives of their pharaohs and their leaders. They wouldn't record any of, the, any of the negatives. And then other people outside of the Egyptian context would record some of the negative things those leaders would do. Um, next, those in question, hey, maybe the Crusaders weren't believers, if they're prone to this kind of Islamization of their Christianity, maybe they're going for all the wrong reasons, and that was an example of them not being uh, uh, true believers. Or they might have believed in God, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're following Christ. And then look to Jesus. God is real, and God is good. So these are ways we process these things and can help somebody else, because today um, 
with really reactive thinking and a short attention span uh, and people assuming they're educated when they're really quite spectacularly ignorant. Um, helping someone not jump to the conclusion, meta bad Christian, Christianity bad. Or bad Christian event, Christianity's the, the um, it's, it's, it, most of the time they're going to want to hear why you haven't left the faith. How do you handle disappointments, bad behavior, even remarkably bad behavior by Christians? How do you do that without just throwing the whole thing out? Any question or comment as we finish here? It's, oh, man, it's 1042. I'm way past. Go ahead, Barbara. Go ahead. Absolutely. Perfect. Wow. Yeah, so you were witnessing your own parents on this because they were disappointed by Christians. Yeah. That's it. I mean, you really, I, I think you, you nailed it on the head. It's, uh, it's, it's enormously, I just think, like you said, if you can remain self-critical, you know, not not neurotic, like you know, but self-critical. Um, understand that you know that that uh, God, you're you're on a trajectory. You're trying to you know, if you're concerned about obedience, um, these are things I think can at least keep you from try from you know, like Bet, even Pastor Betts used to say, keep yourself small. You know, try to do your best to keep yourself. And it's hard for him because he did a lot of great things. So uh, let's pray, you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. Uh, I thank you uh, for my brothers and sisters. I ask you to implant this deep in them, Heavenly Father, so that they are uh, uh, ready to discuss this uh, with those that have been disappointed. But more importantly, God, would you empower their lives that even through suffering, disappointment, betrayal, and hardship, that, Lord, you would still shine. We yield to you so that we can still have you shine through us so that we can be that fifth letter, that fifth gospel, Lord, uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then our lives, that through this imperfect vessel, Heavenly Father, vessels, Heavenly Father, that you'd be, uh, you, you, you at least know we're yielding. We yield, we repent, we commit ourselves to obedience again, and you renew our minds, Lord. Take us from glory to glory, even through our sufferings and hardships, so that, uh, again, we would uh, hear those great words, well done, uh, uh, thou good and faithful servant. So we thank you for this, and I praise you for this, and I ask you to give them a blessed week, Lord, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, amen.